Greetings across whatever you listen to MP3s on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. Hi, I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film composer accompanist, historian, restorationist, DVD label, programmer, presenter. Uh, I used to tune pianos. Uh, I'm an educator. I teach at Wesleyan. Uh, Yeah, there's probably a few other plates that I spin that that I've forgotten to mention. Thanks for wafting in. Thanks for subscribing. This is episode 30 of the Silent Film Music Podcast. I am recording and posting this October 7th or 8th, 2018. Thanks for listening. This is going to be an attempt, anyway, at a mini-episode. Usually I do a longer episode that runs closer to an hour, if you're just discovering this. And some uh, podcasts that I listen to are much shorter. Some of them do a mini-episode that's 15 or 20 minutes, instead of doing a full hour or 90 minutes. I thought I'd do this uh, because I posted something on a, a few days ago on my blog, a basic primer on how to accompany silent films, and it occurred to me that uh, this is something that could turn up in a search, both in terms of text and in terms of audio, for folks who would rather listen to this while they jog or drive or play miniature golf than try to read it on an iPad or a mobile device of some sort. So I'm going to basically give you this this talk uh it's basically the blog post with some minor embellishments, so it doesn't sound like I'm too much like I'm reading something. Uh, and at the end, I'll talk a little bit about um, some of the shows and things I have coming up. But I wanted to uh, share this with everybody who's just getting into this. Now, as a fan and a proponent of silent films, I've enjoyed seeing that every year at Halloween time, more and more shows of silent films are happening. I'm assuming that this is because every church, synagogue, 4-H club, Boy Scout uh, den, or whatever you want to call it, uh, VFW Post Library, everybody, you know, it's it's gotten real affordable to get a good video projector and some form of screen, and it's become easier for people to have movie shows. Uh, I think the rise of rooftop films and outdoor films in the summertime has shown that, And I have just seen every year online that more and more films, silent films are are being done at Halloween time. Because it's a novelty uh, for one thing. And it's also, uh, if you're, especially with a church, if you've got an organist and an organ and people are already used to coming and gathering in in that space and hearing your, your organist, Hey, we also have video projection. Well, let's uh, get a silent movie and see if uh, what our organist can come up with. So it's occurred to me that there's that this popularity of this it means that there are a lot of musicians accompanying a silent film for the very first time. And this may be you. And maybe wondering about how to go about it. You may think you have uh, some idea of what it's supposed to, silent film music is supposed to be. Uh, and this this may help set the record straight. I like to 
Yeah, I'd like to lay out a few basics and rules that make uh, that may help you out. May help you out uh, based on my thirty-five plus years of accompanying silent films. Some of this will be incredibly obvious to you, and some of it may be news. I'm trying to cover all the bases for everyone out there. And if you're not a musician, this may be just interesting insight. All right, it's just for starters. What are the Halloween silent movies that people show? I mean, you may be in a position where you've been asked to do this and you don't know which of the films are 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 the usual suspects. Well, there are some usual suspects that get shown every year on Halloween. Nosferatu from 1922, the first movie version of Dracula. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with John Barrymore. The Phantom of the Opera from 1925 with Lon Chaney and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a, a few others um, that people... There's, you know, there's, there's, there's a bunch of them. Um, there's one less famous but equally macabre and spooky film, and, and that's The Cat and the Canary from 1928. It's really... It's one of the first uh, spooky old house movies where... Uh, a millionaire has died and his family has been summoned for the reading of the will to find out who inherits all the money and one by one family members disappear into bookshelves and trapdoors, etc. There are also other Lon Chaney films besides Fam of the Opera that are you know a bit more uh, dark and creepy. Uh, two of them that I like and, and they get shown a lot are The Penalty um, and The Unknown. And there's other films in the canon to choose from, I'm sure. Um, topic two. Aren't all silent films in the public domain? Well, no. His topic is a bit complicated as far as what is and what isn't PD. Uh, that's short for public domain. And the companies who have produced the DVD or Blu-ray you may be choosing to show at your program probably would appreciate your licensing the show from them. You know, even if it is a film that is in the public domain, if the film is PD, uh, the DVD or Blu-ray company has paid for or licensed the restoration of the film that's on the disc. Silent movies are not supposed to look scratchy, schmeary, and jittery. And there are a few companies like Kino Lorber, Flickr Alley, and the Warner Archive Collection that have released quality editions of the films you want to do. And it's a good idea to license the show. I'd also strongly encourage you not to just download or rip something you found on YouTube. Your results on this may vary and how you choose to proceed on this is up to you. How should I prepare? How should you prepare for a show? Well, this it, it, there's a wide range of what works and what is useful and helpful. And this is up to you as far as what works best for you and what your anxiety and nervousness level may be for a performance, especially for something like this that you've never done before. You'll definitely want to pre-screen the film at least once and take story notes, including timings, so you'll know how much music you'll need to find for a given scene. You may want to write things down that will remind you of an action to look for that happens just before some other big action or scare moment or mood shift so you're prepared for when it happens. Having this kind of a cue sheet on the music rack on your piano or organ can help you stay on top of and ahead of what's happening on screen. Because you're looking at a bunch of things. You're looking at the screen. You may be looking at your, your the stop rail, your hands, stuff like that. 
rehearsing is always a, a good idea if this is uh, something you haven't done a bunch of times already. And I, I highly recommend pro- rehearsing uh, with a projected version of the film and not just watching it off of a television set or a t- computer monitor. It's not always possible, of course, but the larger projected image where you're looking up at it will more closely match the emotional reaction you'll be having during the actual show. And this is something that I've discovered for myself when I'm doing uh, recordings uh, for DVDs. Uh, it's just uh, with the, sm- the smaller image that you're looking straight at, uh, you're not as emotionally engaged. And it really does make a difference. Okay, what kind of music should and shouldn't you play? Well, your scoring should take the film seriously underscoring the drama and emotions of the scene. It shouldn't comment on or, or please don't make fun of the film. The films and the music for them were taken seriously in the 19-teens and 20s and should be by you for a contemporary audience. Try and match the feel of the piece of music to the internal drama of the characters as opposed to what I refer to often as Peter and the Wolf scoring, which is basically assigning a theme for each character and playing it every time they show up on screen, regardless of what's happening in the story. Someone emailed me recently about a scoring project for a silent film-style video and used a few adjectives to describe the style of silent movie music that they had in mind. One of the words they used was the word corny, I don't think that's really what they were going for or meant. And as it turned out in the email exchange that we had afterwards, it it wasn't. But the problem for me is that the word corny is like a lot of other things most people associate with silent movies. Women tied to train tracks dangling uh, off of a cliff or or people engaged in custard pie fights. And this this is a stereotype uh, of silent movies that is not actually rooted in the silent era. You see, silent movies were ridiculed and derided as sort of a quaint antique of a bygone era almost immediately after talking pictures took over. Uh, the ho- hokey narration or title cards, you know, referring to on-screen characters as, as the villain or the hero or damsel in distress. Uh, the, those title cards you may know with the curlicue borders, which, by the way, were almost never used in actual silent films as well as over-the-top ham acting that you know, that people think of is rooted in stage melodrama that preceded the silent films and was for some reason instead perpetuated as silent film fact in spoofs of silent movies ever since the 1930s. The same way the rinky-tink upright piano sound and cornball music used that people sometimes think are quote-unquote what you play for silent movies is another stereotype that's been perpetuated by spoofs and recreations of silent films from TV going back to the 1950s. But it's not typical of appropriate silent film music. The don'ts and be carefuls, if I may use that word on television, uh, of silent film accompaniment are pretty simple. Please avoid playing recognizable music if you can help it. I realize you may not have the ability to improvise, or you may be daunted by the idea of improvising a 90-minute film score. 
The thing to remember is that your audience may already have their own associations with a familiar piece of music, whether it's Ride of the Valkyries or Handel's Messiah, and your use of that piece will trigger their association, regardless of what yours is. Using stereotypical and overused Mysterioso music like In the Hall of the Mountain King or the beaten-to-death Mysterioso Pizzicato, which is the piece that goes bum, 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 should also be avoided. Also, the use of quoting a familiar piece of music is seen today as ironic and is a cue for the viewer not to take what they're watching seriously. Try to find music from the classical repertoire that is at least a bit more unknown than things you hear in commercials or on ringtones. Don't overuse a piece of music or tune you've chosen as a theme. Three or four times during a film should be sufficient. Otherwise, you run the risk of the audience being pulled out of the experience and thinking, oh, there's that music again. I know, I know. The scores for Harry Potter and Star Wars movies employ this a lot, but maybe don't do it for your silent film score. Don't do what I call song title puns meaning playing a popular song from the 20s or any era whose title matches up with something that happens on screen. Someone attended a show of church, uh, uh, at a church of, the, uh, of Phantom of the Opera a few years ago, and they told me that in the scene where the phantom descends into the water in the catacombs under the Paris Opera House, the organist thought it was a great idea to play Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid, and it got a big laugh during the show. But that's not what that moment in the film is about, and it just calls attention to the joke that the musician has made. I'd also recommend staying away from doing sound effects. You know, a downward glissando smear when somebody falls, and then smacking a cluster of bass notes when they hit the ground. Doing this kind of things just calls attention to the musician in the theater and pulls focus from the film. Also, it's really not all that easy to sync up... Uh, and if you miss the cue, then the audience not only is more aware of the musician, they're also aware that the musician has missed the cue. You don't need to play a ton of music and have a constant, busy wash of notes. It's okay to hold chords and play simpler lines. The audience is there, they're trying to watch a movie, and you're there to help them decode what may need help decoding, but no one's there to hear a concert. The busier your music is, the more the audience has to focus their brain on the drama and emotions of the film. They have to work harder, and you want to avoid that if, if, if that's possible. Where do you get music? Well, I'll make finding music a little easier for you. There's a great resource to find and download PDFs of mood music that was composed and published in the silent film era. It's called the Silent Film Sound and Music Archive, or SIFSMA. In the teens and 20s, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of music were composed and published for silent film accompaniment. They resemble classical music, except that in sh instead of shifting mood every 16 or tw 32 bars, they sustain the mood for three to four minutes, so you have enough music for a particular sequence. And during the silent era, every movie theater had a music library of full of these mood cues, as well as classical music and more for the solo accompanist or orchestra conductor to draw on and compile their own score to mix in with their own improvisations if they were doing that. 
The silent film Sound and Music Archive has several hundreds of these pieces uh, for piano or for small or large orchestra, all downloadable in PDF form. It is a lot to sift through, though, and I'll make that task a little easier, although this option will cost you around 30 bucks. In 2015, uh, Music Sales, which is a big music publishing company, uh, published a sheet music book that I compiled and edited called The Music of the Silent Films. The book contains 50 pieces of vintage photo, what's called photoplay music for silent films, which I've organized by mood. So there's two or three or four pieces for each mood that you would encounter in compiling a silent film score. And the book is a good starter kit for silent film scoring, and it includes a section with history on silent film music, biographies of the folks who composed these mood cues, and some basics on silent film scoring. It's available worldwide on websites and Amazons all around you. Lastly, uh, an unusual part of being a silent film accompanist, which is different from probably what any other performing musician has to encounter, which is that it's not about you. Honest. It's true. It's it's a weird duality to experience as a performer and a composer compiler of a 90-minute film score that people are really there to see the movie and not necessarily to hear you play music. Especially when everyone involved has been dead at least 60 years and you're the one who can take a bow at the end of the film. My mentor in, in silent film accompaniment, Lee Irwin, who was a movie organist in the 1920s, he told me the best compliment you can hear from someone after a show is, I forgot you were playing. Most of all, have fun, and I hope your spooky silence show at the end of October goes really well. If the organizers want to do it again next year or even sooner, then you've done your job well. If you want to hear more about the subtleties and techniques of film accompaniment, listen to any of the previous 29 episodes. And feel free to shoot me an email or send me a tweet. Uh, I'm happy to help answer questions and happy to help you do a good job uh, and get you through this experience. Just to keep you apprised as to my current goings-on, we're wrapping up uh, our final preparations for a 10-day festival or series uh, at MoMA from November 23rd to December 2nd uh, that is called Silent Comedy International. It's something I'm co-curating along with Dave Kerr, the film curator at the Museum of Modern Art Department of Film, and with my friend and colleague Steve Massa. It's 10 programs of silent films that were made in uh, Europe, uh, Again, meeting uh, they were showing stuff from Italy, France, England, Germany, as well as a film from Denmark. Uh, it's stuff that you uh, either can't even see on European DVDs or just can't see at all. Um, the idea is to show the roots in physical comedy uh, that started in Europe and came over here. And there will be some American films um, but in those cases, those are things like like a couple of Chaplin comedies where his Car- Fred Carno sketches got reworked into his films. Um, stuff where there was an influence, an obvious influence like that. 
Um, I'm in the throes of re-screening and taking notes on Dracula, the 1931 Bela Lugosi film directed by Todd Browning. I'll be doing a live theater organ underscore for the, the film twice in October. It's uh, going to be an interesting challenge, and I don't even know if it's going to work, but it's worth a, a shot. I'll be doing it at the Rivertown Film Society in Nyack, New York, and at the Library of Congress, and the show information is on my website, silentfilmmusic.com. The Rivertown Film Society, I had, actually, I, I had done some silent film shows for them many, many years ago when they started, and last year I did uh, Nosferatu with them. And they had, um, a year or two prior shown the Boris Karloff Frankenstein with an orchestral underscore. And so this was something they had done before. And we were trying to pick a, a film for this year's show. And it was, you know, we were discussing Phantom of the Opera, which it, it gets done a lot. It's not really a horror picture. There's a couple of scare moments. And that mask, you know, it's creepy, all right. Um but I, I had always had this idea of doing a score for Dracula. And so uh, we wound up going for it. And as long as I was going to be doing it, uh, I had been booked to play for Haxan, the Danish film, at the Library of Congress. And I thought as long, you know, as long as I was going to be down there, I pitched the idea of doing Dracula there. So we're going to give it a shot there. Um, the Rivertown Film Society show will be uh, the Kino Lorber Blu-ray uh, the restoration, and uh, at the Library of Congress, they'll be showing a, a 35 millimeter print that they made uh, uh, not too long ago. I'm almost done recording scores for the Alice Howell DVD project. It's been difficult uh, to, I'll be honest, uh, creating creating scores for 12 slapstick comedies in a short period of time that are being recorded is not easy. Uh, it's almost four hours of music, and uh, comedy shorts, uh, as much as I love them, love watching them, and love showing them to people, they're diff- they are a challenge to play for, because uh, as uh, another uh, elder of the tribe once said to me, it's just boomchik, 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 and uh, uh, so it, it can be a challenge. But the nice thing is that with the Alice Howell films is that there are a lot of personality and charm moments with her. So you get to relax here and there. And the films are just darn clever. So I'm looking forward to finishing the project and releasing it. The DVD found at Mostly Lost Volume 2 drops, as the kids say, uh, on October 30th. And this is our second volume of films that were preserved by the Library of Congress and were identified at the Mostly Lost Film Identification Workshop in 2015, 16, and 17. It's, it's nine, nine films uh, with musical scores by me, Philip Carley, and Andrew Simpson. I will be playing at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, November 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. It's a five-show weekend. What was I thinking? Um... <laughs> No, it'll be fun. It'll be a lot of fun. And uh, we're uh, the opening program on Friday night is an Alice Howell comedies program. And then the next four shows I'm doing on Saturday and Sunday are all Marion Davies silent films. And they will be introduced by Laura Fowler, Laura Gabrielle Fowler, who's a Marion Davies historian. If you have 
When Night Was, was in Flower. On Blu-ray, you've read her wonderful film notes uh, in the booklet for that. There's lots of other information about my shows online at silentfilmmusic.com. Do sign up for my emails. Um, I can't always remember to post stuff on social media, and besides, Facebook kind of hides things um, and controls how well things get actually get seen. But if you get any, you get on my email list, you'll always find out where I'm playing. You can follow me on social media. I am on Instagram and Twitter as at Silent Film Music, and I'm on Facebook. And if you like the show, you like what I do, you must think it must take him a lot of energy to get all that work done. So why not buy me a cup of coffee? It's possible. If you go, this is not a joke, if you go to ko-fi.com, that's K-O-F-I dot com slash Ben Modell. You can buy me a cup of coffee. Go check it out and you'll see how it works. It's real easy. That's shout out to Nina Haas and Makia Matsumura who've bought me a cup of coffee recently after hearing about this on other episodes. It's ko-fi.com slash Ben Modell. Check that out. You have been listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. The podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. This is Ben Modell, your host, thanking you for listening, and I'll see you at the silence.